welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, let's welcome a fantastic guest today. Everyone listening, please welcome Brian Lim, founder of SwiftAds.io. Brian, how's it going today? Hey, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. We're really happy to have you. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm based in Toronto, up in Canada. In my opinion, the center of the universe, but I think that's part of the reason why everyone hates Toronto. <laughs> you know what? I don't think I mentioned I was a born Torontonian. I live in Hamilton right now. So down the street, that's amazing. Awesome. I love Hamilton. I used to go there all the time because a good buddy of mine went to McMaster and I'd visit him and then we'll just hang out on campus and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. I call it the sister city of Toronto now because it's of the same vintage. It's got so much character. I think it's super undervalued if anyone's looking for a jump to real estate. And it is the center of the universe because Cal had a gravity pull to come to Toronto too, right, Cal? Yeah, I came all the way from Bahrain, first to Montreal, then I moved to Toronto and stayed there for nine, 10 years almost. And that's how John and I met, basically. Awesome. Montreal is another amazing city. So I used to go to Montreal like every two months for a business trip. And I miss it so much ever since the pandemic. So my wife has family there as well. So I'm dying to go visit Montreal and then short hop over to Ottawa and then back to Toronto. That's usually our little road trip to visit family. Right on. Yeah. And in my little ambitious self, I've set a personal goal of getting my private pilot license. And there's an airport here called Grimsby International. It's like 20 minutes from me. I'm going to rent a plane and fly to Tremblant for the weekend. That's like really high up there for me. We'll see when that happens. And of course, Montreal, old Quebec, all that kind of stuff. I love the province. Cool. So thanks so much for joining us. I always like to get started with a question. So what gets you excited about life? I think for me, and I guess this might resonate with a lot of your listeners, just going out there and getting it. What I mean by that is each day I wake up really energized by the fact that I'm able to make a difference in my life, my family situation, and sort of build a brighter future for me, my family, my parents. I don't know how many people know about my background, but I grew up, you know, fairly poor. And my wife as well. For those who know Toronto, we grew up in pretty rough neighborhoods. Hers was one of the rougher ones. And I kind of, you know, not up there in terms of like gang violence, but my neighborhood wasn't all that well off either. And I only understood that when I grew up, looking back and everything. But yeah, I've had this intense drive to make a life for myself, improve my family's living situations ever since I was a kid. And that's what gets me up every day. It gets me energized every morning I wake up. That's got to be the biggest motivation, right? And I remember, you know, we weren't super wealthy either. And I remember wondering when I was growing up, what is old money? Why is there a them versus us? And you know, I remember this distinct poster my mom had on the wall growing up. It was five koalas in like a yellow jacket and this one <laughs> koala with a Hawaiian shirt. And it was like always like a imagery to like, you can be your own person and all this. And she never really demanded, you know, a certain thing. And I think that cultivated the ability to think, but I'll be truthful and say my big breakaway point wasn't really five years old. It wasn't 10. It was deciding to drop out of university. And she didn't like that. No one did. Everyone thought it was crazy. But to me, like you eventually hit an impasse where you have to say, I'm going to make my own decision. And I think there's a lot of those 
expectations and people pull on strings on what the right way to do things is. And I find if you don't at least have like a space to meditate or a space to think for yourself and learn, I always say, be curious about the world. It's tough, I think, to make the jump from life sucks or life is the way it is to, you know, the optimism, the creativity, the wonder of, you know, anything is possible. Yeah, I think that really resonates with me as well. Because growing up, there was always that dichotomy between like, okay, should I follow the traditional path, you know, go to school, get a job, and then just basically work that job and then retire? Or should I just make the jump, make the leap to go off the beaten path and pursue entrepreneurship, which is what I'm doing right now? And to be honest, like, it really takes a lot of introspection. So like thinking and in your case, what you mentioned, meditating on who you are, why you're doing it, all these like really deep, big questions before you can actually answer and say, okay, I should do this or I should do this other thing. I'm super blessed and thankful that my parents, they had like a very traditional Chinese type of mentality, you know, become a doctor, become a lawyer. And then to be honest, they were disappointed because I had the potential to be a doctor, but I just chose not to do it. I went on to go to pharmacy school, get a biochem degree, but I didn't actually go to pharmacy school, even though I applied, just because it wasn't the type of thing for me. And to be honest, they were very, very disappointed. But it was helpful that my dad had always been an entrepreneur his entire life, you know, from hopping on trains back in China to smuggle denim jeans back and forth between Hong Kong and mainland China. He was that type of guy. And I'm really fortunate to have a father like him to inspire this entrepreneurial spirit in me. And a part of why I started Swift Ads is exactly this. I want to help people like my dad, who's enterprising, who's willing to take risks. And like you said, like, why is there a divide, right? Why is there people who can understand how to do business way better than other people or their circumstances and the means that are available to them afford them more opportunities than others? Yeah, totally. What an awesome story. And, you know, kudos to your dad, because whenever people say I'm not good enough, or I don't have the money, like the resourcefulness character, your dad had a lot more adversity, I'm guessing, you know, you mentioned the world smuggling, I guess it wasn't legal, or, you know, some places in the world, you're not allowed to make money in Canada. Every opportunity is here, you just have to wake up and say, I want to, right. And you talked earlier about the drive, the want to be better. Is that innate? Is it circumstantial? Is it a huge event that happens in your life? What do you think draws someone into decide they want to be better for pretty much forever? That's a very good question. My therapist will probably say it has something to do with like how my dad, you know, growing up, he had to hustle a lot. He worked basically 8 to 8 p.m. every day when I was a kid. And he wasn't around a lot. You know, he'd go to work before I wake up and then he'd come home when I fell asleep already as a kid. And also as like a Chinese man, he was also very difficult for him to express himself. In more recent years, I would say our relationships repaired. So a part of it has to do with like, I want to be better. And I also want to prove to my parents that, you know, I'm doing all right. All your sacrifice was worth it. Leaving everything in China, coming to Canada with like $100 US and then getting ripped off for a cab ride and spent 20 bucks basically to get into the city. So they started with like just 80 bucks and two suitcases. So my mentality right now is like if they can make it, like imagine how much further I can go with all the sacrifice that they've made to get me to where I am right now. And when people ask me like, you know, about what drives you or isn't this such a big risk? 
you know what? If my parents can start with nothing, even if I fail, I lose the house, I lose everything, start from zero again, I'm pretty sure I can do a lot better than most people. So this isn't really a risk. Like the downside is not even that big. And to answer your question more directly, like I want to be better because I'm competing against myself. I want to be better than I was yesterday. I was better than I was a month ago, etc. In my younger years, I would be competing against other people. And as I grew up and mature more, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how far ahead you are compared to other people. Nobody else cares. The only person you should be comparing yourself to is your past self. So that's sort of where my motivation to improve comes from. A bit from my upbringing, a bit from also this new worldview I've developed over the years. A huge relief came to me personally when actually I had the same kind of realization. So growing up, I was very, very similar in the sense that I would compare myself to others. I was very, very competitive. I still am to some extent, but obviously for different reasons. And I wanted to be the best out there in whether it was education, whether it was sports, whichever way you like to slice it. And it was exhausting. The moment I realized that there is always going to be someone better and no one really cares where you stand, everyone's just too busy working on their own selves is the moment that I realized a huge sense of relief and that I figured I just need to be better than I used to be yesterday and the day before and the day before that. So that's a very, very good point where a lot of people till now, I think, struggle to get their heads around. And it's very, very important, obviously, to know that because first of all, it takes a while for you to improve from where you used to be, but it takes only one day at a time for you to improve and get better from where you were a year ago. And then you just look behind and you just realize how far ahead you've come from where you used to be. So that's a beautiful point that you bring up. And I just wanted to share there as well. And the same thing is seeing how your parents struggled. I'm from Bahrain and my parents have always been in Bahrain, but They've gone through a lot, obviously, to give us the education that we currently have, my siblings and I, and I was able to study abroad and go to Canada. And that was all because of their sacrifice. So knowing that, like you mentioned, what we have today, even if we lose it all, we have the knowledge. So we have the upper hand. They didn't have the technology we have today. They didn't have the means or the channels that we have available today to express, to improve, to educate ourselves. So technically, even though it's more difficult in ways, it's a lot easier in other ways. Yeah, I want to jump in here for a second. So a couple things, you know how that saying you're like the average of your five best friends or mm -hmm. being the smartest person in the room. Like I always grew up trying to be an independent thinker, but you got to learn how to do that. And as soon as you're a kid biking too fast or you know, a parent says, don't jaywalk. You have that trust in authority. You have that doctors know how to heal me. And, you know, I don't mean go in the deep end and totally throw out conventional wisdom and methodology, but you have to be able to assess and say, is this best for me? Is this advice best for me? And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a gut feeling. Sometimes it's just an inkling saying, you know what, is there another way? And that's the way I think you coach to be curious about the world, to think on your own. And when you have the uncomfort of thinking for yourself, almost feels wrong. It's like nothingness. It's like, you know, I'm wasting my time or I'm not doing anything people think I should be doing. It's such a, you know, an abstract 
thing when you follow the advice of others. Because when you have your own sensibilities and you have your own curiosities and you indulge in them and you want to learn and grow on your own, it seems absurd to really listen to others just blindly. It seems absurd just to shut yourself off. So it is something you can curate and develop. And, you know, just speaking to better versus others and improving yourself. I love those points. You know, I have a kind of like a framework I like to think about. So I call it the curve of innovation. So think of like a dinner plate and you turn it around and you've got this circle, right? Some people are very visual. So, you know, if you follow a bit of math, like the outermost point, let's say in the corner on the right is, let's say a pharmacist or a doctor, they're curing cancer, they're working on medicines and they're the best at what they do. No question. They're specialized. They're pushing humanity forward, trying to, you know, do things like solve Alzheimer's. So that's a specialization. Then you take, you know, Brian, now you're working on Swift ads and you're arguably, you know, the best at what you do in this niche. And maybe you're on a different side of the plate. And the thing is, you know, I always call it like two samurais in battle. So whenever we have someone on the show like yourself, I just stand in awe and say, wow, this is someone who really knows what they're doing. They're on top of their game. And, you know, it's an appreciation. So it's not about, you know, being better. It's about saying, look at this person. I can learn from them so much. And at the end of the day, on the flip side, if, you know, you run into people on the street or I always say, like, I would go sweep floors if it got me to where I wanted to be. And I've had so many odd jobs in my life. And you almost want to have humility about your circumstances, not about showing off. It's not relevant. And number two is have empathy for others. There's no measurement to me anymore. It has nothing to do with better or worse. It's are you your healthiest self? Are you, you know, your happiest self? And those times you make connections with people. How can you add value to them and they add value to you back? It's just such an accident of life that I think should be appreciated. These are the moments that count. Totally agree. I think in terms of like entrepreneurship and taking the safer route, I think in my personal journey, what I would recommend is you can learn in so many different ways and you can arrive at the same destination with different routes. So I went through a traditional university education, right? I went to high school graduated university, biochem, business. And then I worked a very long time in quote unquote corporate world before I took the jump. There's a time and place for that, 100%. I wouldn't know what I know. And in terms of like how to conduct myself, how to build a business without having observed and gone through all those years in corporate to arrive to where I am. But that doesn't mean it's the only way. Same thing with the stories you hear about the Stanford path, right? You go to Stanford, you drop out of Stanford, and then you get accepted to Y Combinator and then build a startup. That's another path. There's no right path. And I think whatever path you choose for yourself, if you just continue to, like Cal said, slowly make progress towards this goal, you're going to get there. And I definitely encourage people to try different things to arrive at what path suits you. And at the same time, what you've said about, you know, learning and humility is 100% correct. My philosophy, no matter how good I am at any particular thing, there's obviously and always will be more things that I can learn. And you'll be surprised at whom you can learn it from. So as long as you're open to the concept of learning from everybody, I think that's where you can get the most growth. Again, in my younger years, I would be like, oh, this person is this and that, and this person doesn't have as high an education as me, and then I just completely ignore them. And I try to be the smartest person in the room every single time. 
But when I reverse that mentality and say, oh, what can I learn from this person? What can I learn from this other person? One of my fondest memories is having conversations with the cleaning ladies at the ad agency that I worked at because we stayed late almost every day and we developed this amazing relationship. So shout outs to Mimi, if you're listening. She is a great and beautiful person. Hi, Mimi. <laughs> yeah, Mimi. Te quiero. And, you know, just being able to have that humility has been the biggest difference in my life. Again, in my younger self, I would not even want to speak with people that are less educated or from different circumstances than me. I was a bit of an ass when I was a kid. But now I would say some of my biggest moments and learnings are just from random conversations. I have different types of people. Yeah, totally. And it only takes one good conversation or one good yes. moment of realization to say, holy shit, I've been doing it wrong all along. And you embrace the new, the enlightenment. So I always say enlightenment is a slow process. It's part of life. Life's a journey. So, you know, the memes and the people who actually influence your life, it could be a moment in a sidewalk, a small little happenstance of running into someone and kind of changes your life forever. It makes you appreciate things. And it really is a change of lens of how you see the world. And I find when you have these factors, you know, you're grounded, you're learning, you want to grow, you start to tune into the possibilities, the what if, what can I try, the why not. And I think that is one of the most powerful things out there. So Brian, why don't you share with us more about, like you mentioned, seems like you have a common theme here with a lot of our guests in the sense of getting to corporate, really realizing how much better you can do and what you can do more. So do you mind sharing with us a bit more of that and then how you transitioned into doing what you're doing today? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So my first job out of university was working at a small agency and I loved it there. It was an amazing experience and I'm really thankful for John, Tanya and the crew there to take a big gamble on this kid basically and giving me the opportunity to work on large accounts and basically influence how their business grew. And John's just a wonderful guy, John Ammerdale. He is a very smart and very enterprising man. And I learned so much from interacting and working for him. But at the end of the day, what made me realize all the hard work that I'm putting in essentially benefits others, where I can instead directly benefit myself if I make this jump and become an entrepreneur, start my own gig, basically. But I knew back then I wasn't ready. I didn't have you know, the industry connections. I didn't have the business acumen to do well. So I kind of just gained my experience. So I stayed there for three years. And then I went to another larger agency to work for another three years. And during that time, I kind of honed my skill, got better at what I did. So over the course of six, seven years. And then I started getting the other end of the spectrum. I went to a startup, a small agency. And then I went to kind of like a medium-sized agency. So now 10 or so years after that, you know, after I graduated, I started thinking, you know what, I should start having my own clients. So that's when I started branching out, kind of moonlighting. And those times were rough. Like you'd wake up at six in the morning to deal with clients in Europe, and then you go to work at nine. And then after you get back home from six to 9 p.m., you'd work on the West Coast clients because that's when they're still during the workday. So I did that for about a year or two and then went in-house. So instead of ad agencies, I went into like a marketing department. So looking back, 
it was sort of like the perfect amalgamation of experience in terms of I went to a small agency, went to a large agency, went to a startup agency, and then a mid-sized agency. So I can kind of see what the through thread is from all these different stages in terms of business building. And I understand what needs to happen at different stages. And the only thing I didn't do that I'm learning right now is how to actually start a business and scale it to the point where I can start hiring people. Because in all my other experience, I've only come in after the owners are able to hire on new staff. So my journey is sort of gaining experience, leveling up each time, getting different skill sets, honing my craft. And then through all these years, just seeing the same problem, you know, people find it difficult to run ads for themselves, which is why ad agencies exist. But Google ads in particular, it's not that difficult if you understand the bigger picture. And a lot of that stuff is easily programmable. So that's where I kind of had this light bulb moment and say, hey, I can do this for people. I can automate what I do. And that's actually what Swift as is. So that's sort of like how my journey evolved, found a problem, gained experience through corporate, and then light bulb moment because you know of all the past experiences and observations, and then put it out there and sort of iterate and ask people how to improve on it. And here I am still building Swift ads. That's amazing. What a good story. And so where are you at the stage? I think you don't have employees yet, but do you have any paying customers, I suppose? I was like hearing the journey of the first customer because a lot of people, when they think of an idea, they don't know the process, which you just outlined. You know, use your experience, use your talent, your insight, your unique understanding of the world where it almost becomes easy to do something, right? And then number two is no one can imagine someone paying them to do something. So can you talk to us a bit about how long have you had Swift ads going and where are you at today? So I'll go back to a point that was made earlier in terms of technology and how easy it is nowadays compared to you know when our parents were coming up. Nowadays, you can build a company super, super easy. And there should be no excuses for anyone building a startup that doesn't have at least some validation or some proof of concept validated because it doesn't take a lot of money to get started nowadays. Some would even argue you can do it all for free, but that's a whole different conversation. I kind of start with my consulting side. Like I was moonlighting on the side, you know, managing people's Google ads while I was working a full-time job at an ad agency. Technically, not a conflict of interest because the clients that I was taking on were completely different niches and would never have went and hired the ad agency I was working for because they were way too small of a client to even be considered for the ad agency. But it all came down to you know asking people, providing value and helping people trust you that you can do a good job for them. That was a big pivotal moment. Oh, someone's willing to pay me to do this. They don't need to go to an ad agency. And it was a supply demand price equilibrium. You got to figure out how to price your stuff. And then slowly from there, you know, I started with, I think, five, six hundred bucks. Oh, yeah, I'll manage Google ads for you, you know, just for a couple hundred bucks. You're going to pay for that anyways. Why not pay me? And then I'll do a better job than the other guy in much more words than that. though. And from there, I kind of leveraged that experience and that skill to then just approach people and say, hey, do you want to pay a much lower price, but I'm using this software? to do it for you. And that's sort of how I started onboarding people onto Swift ads. It was very hustler too. In the beginning, it was just going on Reddit forums, answering people's questions about Google ads, and then just saying, hey, you know what? If you're having trouble with this, I can help you set it up. 
but it's going to be through my software. Pay me 150 bucks to do it for you. In fact, if you go on Reddit right now, you can probably search for, I use the same handle. I don't hide. So you can probably search for all my Reddit posts about, I'll create a custom Google ads campaign for you for 150 bucks. And it was surprising to find, like you said, that people are willing to pay this. It's like, oh, they think it's a good deal. So that's actually where I arrived to the price point for Swift ads. A lot of experimentation, putting it out there on Reddit, talking to people in the community, you know, tons of Facebook groups in terms of entrepreneurs and small business owner groups, a lot of people kind of asking for help. And in the early stages of trying to figure out all the mechanics and the bugs in the system, making it a smooth workflow. And by system, I mean like Swift ads is right now currently built on Google Sheets and Zapier. So for anyone who thinks it's high-tech stuff, it's not. This is a point to prove to people that you can start anywhere. Google Ads is free. Zapier, you can use the free plan. But I pay for the paid plan, which is like 20 bucks a month, which is nothing considering, you know, you can start a business with 20 bucks a month. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And so it comes down to this whole no-code movement. You know, you can have an idea, you can use your skills and experience and then coalesce it into a value proposition and you know we've talked about it before you can go sell stuff on Kijiji you can be like you know a handy person you can go paint people's walls like time and thinking and how do you present yourself to find one customer right like you said proof of concept and I guess people call it minimum viable product so like what's your scrappiest presentation to the world to say I will help you for this amount of money and I love how you know, price discovery or price testing, a lot of people we have on the show don't really think about making a million dollars. They don't go for, you know, big ticket. They almost want to see like, oh, no one's going to even pay me. So hundred bucks, or I'm going to do a logo for $200 and it takes them like 50 hours. And it's just cool because we hear the fiber stories just slowly chip away at the process. And, you know, back to the, you do it once, you do it forever. Once your eyes are open, they don't really close. You don't really say, that was luck, right? None of this is attributed to luck. So there's something unique here, which is it's not lucky. It's all your experience, all your bringing everything together to kind of move forward. And once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. You can just iterate. You can try different things. You can go for different niches or you can, you know, go on Facebook versus something like Kijiji and just explore. And I think there's something beautiful about that process, which is you know, some might call it passion, but it's just an enjoyment and everything feels right. Like I bet when you're doing this, you just feel like, yeah, I'm doing my best self. Yeah, I do. And there's an interesting concept in terms of like the notion of luck and coming into it. Oh, it must be nice to be, you know, so brilliant and come up with this billion dollar idea. But like 90% of the people that came up with this brilliant idea didn't arrive at that idea right out of the gates. So that iteration thing that you're talking about is super, super important. Heck, even how I'm marketing Swift ads right now is completely different one year into this project. In the beginning, our tagline was, we help small business owners grow. And then it was kind of like this nebulous thing. It's like, oh, what does it mean to grow? But everybody wants to grow. And we evolved it to our current iteration of very succinctly explaining what Swift ads does. Swift ads automates advertising from creating your ads to monitoring your campaigns to optimizing them. It's so much easier to understand. And who knows, this may not even be the final version. But all of this is to say that if you ever come across a moment, and for all those out there who's listening and want to start or have ever wanted to start their own business, 
if you ever come across a moment, it's like, oh, I wish this was a better experience or like, I wish there was a different way to do this. That is a business idea. Because if you feel this way, there's bound to be other people that feel this way. Now, how do you then go in and test that hypothesis? How do you find these people that feel the same way that you do? I was just chatting with someone on Twitter. I wanted to make an Instagram clone because nowadays it's so difficult for photographers to have like an avenue to share their portfolio and get paid for it. Instagram doesn't pay people a portion of the ad revenue. So if you literally just create an avenue for people to share photos and get ad revenue like YouTube, that's going to be huge. Tons of photographers and content creators would then go on this thing. That's a freebie for everyone listening. I'll take 10% if you incorporate. But yeah, like the whole notion of it's too difficult or this person's so lucky, you create your own luck. Keep your eyes and ears open. If you hear someone complain about something, figure out if there's a way to do it simpler and easier for them. And then that's your business idea. Providing value is what business is. Yeah, it's that basic. And I love hearing the organic process of discovery of the value proposition because it literally is one person to another person. People get scared of the business, the Harvard Business School, the mm-hmm. you know billion-dollar valuations. Like you said, the have-nots that we're not born into money. And modern business is not trust fund MBAs. It's entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is exactly what you said. It's a discovery. It's an appreciation and a love for making the world only slightly better. And so much money changes hands. If you can connect and resonate with other entrepreneurs, and you have a unique skill, it's a great idea. Leverage that skill to help people along the way. You're picking people up over the wall with your arms, and you're good at it. And they'll go on to do great things. But that's how the world works. Just make the world better in your own unique way. And that can turn into so much more. And for our listeners, Google Sheets is, I guess, self-explanatory. It's like an online Excel for those who don't know. Zapier, can you explain what that is to our listeners? Yeah, Zapier is kind of like this automation tool. So you can kind of connect two different apps or two different services and automate some sort of interaction between the two. A very simple example is if someone fills out a form on my website, that gets automatically zapped. It gets automatically plugged in to a Google Sheet for me. And this is the secret sauce to Swift ads. I'm giving this out there for everyone. What happens is then I take the form fields, whatever the person filled out, and then I turn that into ad headlines. And then from there, that Google Sheet gets uploaded into Google Ads all through Zapier, one zap, two zap, and then it just kind of propagates that data to different spreadsheets, basically. But yeah, there's tons of integrations. I have one for my calendar, so it syncs up all my different calendars because my main business is my ad agency, TreeBud. And my startup, Swift Ads, has its own calendar. And I have my own personal calendar, right? So I try to sync all three of these calendars up. There's probably an easier way to do it, but I just prefer using Zapier. Yeah. Are you um, a desktop guy or a mobile guy? I think modern smartphones can get a lot of it done. Are you 100% mobile today? So in the past, when I was still moonlighting, I did like 80% of my work on my phone. And it was because of necessity. I would say nowadays, it's more like 60-40% desktop. So 60% of the time on my laptop here. And then 40% of the time I'm on my phone or on my tablet, just on the go. Keeping contact with clients and checking up on things here and there. That's awesome. And what is the iterative process like? I always say 
you get one customer and then the logical step is to copy and paste to find a second, a third, a fifth. Is it a standard 150 and try and get 10,000 customers or what's your process like? So for someone listening, they can kind of follow the sequence of events and try and maybe take the plunge themselves. Yeah. So here's the major caveat to everything I've said up to now. (laughs) Yes, whatever problem you come across can become a business, but not every business idea is a good business idea. So how do you figure out whether or not it's a good business idea? You just keep asking people, you know, do you have this problem? Oh, I'll solve this problem for you. And you just keep asking people. The more people you come across to ask these questions, the more validation you get in terms of whether or not it's a good idea. Because if you can only solve the problem for one person, that's a horrible idea because the amount of money you have to charge this one person to make it a viable business for yourself is going to be astronomical. And then because of you know price equilibrium, that person is not going to be willing to pay that price. Like for example, you can build a sick mansion, but it's going to cost someone $5 million. How many people in your immediate circle has 5 mil to spare to build a mansion? Not likely. So you're not going to get very far in terms of getting your idea validated, putting it out there to iterate. So now you got to start lowering your price. This is one example. Price is the easiest lever to pull. There are others. So now you got to start lowering your price until you find an equilibrium. And then now what's that service you can provide at that price equilibrium? In my case, what I did was I tweaked the offering a little bit here and there. In the beginning, it's like, oh, I'll set everything up for you for 150 bucks. So ads, I'll do the keyword research, you know, set up a campaign, even teach you how to run it. Immense value. Tons of people signed up. But that is not easily replicable. So I start kind of removing features, which is basically the same as increasing your price. So I started removing features to come up with like a set that people are still willing to pay 100 bucks for, for example. And they think they still got value out of it. And keep asking people. I think I've talked to over 500. 600 people over the course of one year. And now I'm testing at scale through ads. So all in maybe like 2000 people over the past year to float this offer to them. And that's not even including like all the individuals that I'm talking to on Twitter and engaging with them. So if I were to estimate over the year, I think close to 50,000 people have come across this offer and quote unquote, help me validate it, whether or not this feature set and at this price point is viable. So that's sort of like the testing that you have to do. Like I, I've seen so many people that's like, oh yeah, I talked to like 50 people. Nobody likes it. I think I'm going to pivot. It's like 50 people, bro. That's like, you can do that in one day. You're telling me you're going to give up on your business idea because you spent one day and you got nothing out of it. You really have to talk to a lot. And I mean, a lot of people to validate your business idea. And actually one more point is, What does a valid business idea look like? If people are willing to pay you to do whatever you're telling them to do and not complain about the end product, and you're able to do that at a quicker and quicker clip and cheaper acquisition, that's a viable business. Because if you have to spend more money to chase after your next person than you are to gain revenue from that next person, that's not a viable business. We actually talk about this in terms of investing a lot in our previous episodes. And it's the same way in the sense that you need to gather enough data points and have a set of data that will validate your strategy. And this is no different if you think of it. So you run your own business and you're trying to 
gather enough information and data in terms of feedback and how much people are jumping in and signing up. And some people think it's good value. Some people think it's not good value. And based on, let's say, a span of one year and you had 50,000 people in one way or the other that you've interacted with, that's a huge sample. Obviously, it can get a lot bigger and the bigger it gets, the more clear the idea becomes what can you tweak in terms of price, in terms of service or product, in terms of time and effort that you can put towards one thing or reduce from another thing. And that way you can really tweak your work. And the reason I say that it comes with investing is because I come from the school of record every single investment position trade that you make, because then as long as you're able to sort that data and read it and understand it, then you'll be able to understand what works from what doesn't. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here. So when it comes down to the whole 50,000 eyes, I love how you framed it. So you use the example of a $5 million house. I always talk about like, let's say you're selling an old Game Boy. You only have one of them. So you're going to sell it for 50 bucks. It's not a business because that was your only one. So you're not going to go buy, mm -hmm. you know, use Game Boys for $45 and hope you'll make 50. The time equation and the inventory and all these kind of things don't really line up. But maybe it would work. Who knows? Like maybe you can start a vintage game store all online. And the giving up thing is very interesting because I think even entrepreneurs give up on ideas and they kind of put them to the back burner. I've got apps and other things that I've kind of deferred. So it's a very interesting concept. And I love how you talk about the whole price discovery and testing because the most successful entrepreneurs I see do test plus or minus and do test things like value proposition. So, you know, the example I use is people who do the one-to-one, -one, the video editing, the content creation, which there's a huge market for because everyone is kind of awakening into the single brand. You are the brand mentality. So, you know, whether you're into e-commerce or you're into some kind of online presence, which I think there's just an abundance of opportunity. The moonlighting is a great example because you kind of did it in a way that solves the hurdle of, are there even customers? You tested on your own time. You tested on the, let's say 10 PM at night, you're doing some work for people and you're reaching out to people. And that's kind of the secret for anyone listening. So do it in your spare time. And let's say you make a hundred dollars for 10 hours of work. It might not seem like a lot, but I find that, you know, if you can cut the amount of time down, so you talk about automation or you can try charging more or charge less for, you know, more succinct features. And this is part of the iterative process, which is like, I'm going to do anything I can to get one customer. And then can I get more for slightly less because I'm more experienced and I know, you know, people don't actually need all these 10 features. They need the main two and they'll get going. And I love it because it distills business into the basics and it's easy to understand. You explain it in such a good way. I think modern conversation through the podcast platform or through Twitter or through, you know, connecting with people. I'm not going to say don't go to school, but I'm going to say that it's a totally viable alternative to doing something on a $50 internet connection as opposed to tens of thousands of dollars in tuition. And why is it that people who go to school are not happy or they don't have a fulfilling career? There's a disconnect there. So the kind of negative opinion, or just the cautious approach is that Maybe school is not perfect for everyone. And maybe, you know, you will not get your value, your money's worth. So the same way you're charging $100, if your school is charging $40,000, you're 
you might not be the right client. And it's interesting how you frame it because I just love that. You know, it really drills the point home of the basics. So can you talk a bit about, you know, you've got 50,000 eyes. Do you measure like how many people take the offer? And is it like a, you know, 1%? I know in the ad space, I guess it's called click through rate and that kind of stuff. So I guess it's different for everyone, but what's the good stat to achieve? What's the right answer for someone who's getting in front of people they know online or walking down the street? How should they think about the success of, okay, I talked to 5,000 people and, you know, 50 said, I'm going to go ahead with it. And then I talked to 50,000. How do you think of scale and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think a lot of people, when they hear this is what it takes, start thinking about like, oh, this is such an insurmountable amount of people to need to talk to. I don't even have 50 friends or like go on your Facebook page, I have 500 friends on this account. But realistically, how many of them do you have like a real like one-on-one -on -one conversation with on a regular basis, right? But going back to the tools and access we have, like there's Twitter, there's Reddit, there's Facebook groups, you can throw up your own website and run ads for it. So I deal with a lot of different ad accounts throughout my years. Currently active, I have like 12 different clients of fairly different verticals. A quote unquote good click through rate is different for every client. So that's sort of like the cop out answer because I generally don't know. But where you should start is so let's go to the video editor example. And if anyone listening is a video editor, please email me. I'm sure John and Cal would put my contact information in the episode. I'm looking for a video editor. But let's say you're a video editor and you want to find clients. Go out and find 10 YouTube channels that you think you can improve on their edits. Reach out to them directly. That's 10 emails, right? And then now you go to Reddit, post a, you know, for hire type of thing. It's like, hey, I'm a video editor. This is my reel. Take a look. This is my price. Go on Facebook, go to your local businesses and say, hey, I can shoot a video for you and edit it. These are ways that you can go and one-on-one -on -one interact with people. Once you get a steady client base, then you start thinking about how do you scale that up. Then instead of one customer at a time, how do I find the next five customers at scale? Then it comes, oh, maybe a throw of a website or you know, get a referral program going, right? If you refer me to a friend and they pay, you get 50 bucks. So use your past clients to refer to new clients. And at some point, you touched upon this earlier, is you have to start charging more. And my advice for anyone who is like a freelancer or a business person providing a service, charge more earlier. And the reason for that is each new client you take on is opportunity cost. So you should factor that into your price because you only have 24 hours in a day. If you take on five clients, on average, take up you know two hours each, right? That's 10 hours of your time. But the next client that you take on, your 11th client, means that you have to drop something within this 10 or you have to hire someone else. So you have to leverage someone else's time. So you have to bake into your pricing scheme the additional cost of your time that you would spend on another client. Like I said, I started, I think, with like five, 600 bucks for managing people's ads. I don't get out of bed nowadays unless someone pays me 1800 a month to manage their ads, just the retainer fee. So on top of that, they have to spend whatever amounts they'd spend on ads. I have clients nowadays that I'm charging upwards of $3,000 a month because their accounts require so much more time to manage than others that I can't take on new clients. So I have to factor in and buffer that price for that one client because of opportunity costs. 
And this I wouldn't have learned if I didn't go to school and taking that economics course. You won't know what questions to ask for things that you don't know about. So I agree with a lot of people that the quote-unquote traditional education is not for everyone. I hundred percent agree. But don't discount the value of a traditional education. So does that answer your question? I think I rambled a bit. <laughs> no, it's fantastic, and yeah, I totally agree. And I think you brought up some good terms like opportunity cost. I guess I'll just tie that into the education thing, which is. You know, if education is free, do it. If you have the means, do it. Just don't lose the curiosity, the drive to try and do your own thing and discover. Because education is about, like you said, it's competition. It's about learning, but you get scored on how right you are. But you said it earlier, which is there's more than one right answer, and I always talk about that in business. So unless you do even like a philosophy course, and I did an entrepreneurship course, you know, ten years back, and it wasn't teaching you that discovery process. So I think we're a unique moment in time where you can have conversations with people, and how many people talk to their friends, study, and go home, and then you know talk about their small successes, like oh, I got a new job or I got a new car, and it doesn't cultivate that uniqueness of growing. And I think there's a lot to be said there. And my analogy to opportunity cost is: Would you buy a Bugatti if you have fifty dollars in your pocket? Impossible. To commute to work, it's just not happening. So, for some people, I would argue that grades aside, the cost of tuition is a lot. So, Khan Academy, you can learn economics one on one. You can YouTube. We had a guest from Colombia who is an ecom phenom. He learned through YouTube and he learned through testing and practicing and borrowing a little bit of money. And when I hear these stories, I get inspired. I think you also framed it well, which is that's also not the right answer for everyone. But can you? kind of open your ears, open your eyes and see what's out there. I think that's the bottom line lesson here, which is there's a lot of opportunity to learn and grow and just change from the world is how it is. And I find when people see that, they have a negative attribution because they don't see the potential. They don't see the optimism. And I think how you think about things is a big driver of your belief in yourself to begin with. And then number two, addressing this whole luck thing. Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place is the cliche saying. So all you have to do is go to an extreme example. So like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, when you have serial entrepreneurs be successful, those are the kind of people I'd recommend at an early stage to study. Find people who are doing what you want to be like. So Brian has just dropped an immense amount of knowledge in the last hour. Follow Brian's YouTube channel, right? Get on Twitter, and I'm sure you're open to like you know people reaching out to you and. Of course, it's a time factor, but I'm just super thankful you came on because I learned so much in the last hour, and it's been amazing. So, these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Which is, to me, all these things add up into boosting up myself, and I get super pumped after every episode to go light the world on fire in a blaze of passion and go do a lot of cool things. So, just super, super thankful you came on. And as we wrap up here, is there anything you want to plug? I know you've got some of your own social going on, maybe some of your companies, and where can people find you? Awesome, thank you for that. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I love sharing my experience and my knowledge because at the end of the day, like the more I put out there, the more someone's gonna be like, "Oh, Brian, you're an idiot. This is wrong." And this, oh, you're right. It gives me the opportunity to learn from my mistakes. And I think the most important thing for all entrepreneurs, and I, I tweet about this all the time, is don't buy into your own hype. So hype yourself up, no problem, but don't buy into your own hype. Just stay humble and learn about it. You can find me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active nowadays. Bkh underscore lung. I go by that handle everywhere. So find me there. My YouTube channel is、uh, Treebud Academy. It's the only one on YouTube with that name. So you can find that. 
Follow me on Twitter. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. The last time I posted a YouTube video was quite a long time ago. But if you're a video editor, hit me up so that I can start churning out videos much more often. So if you enjoy this content, you enjoy hearing from me, I'd love to create more content. So the listeners out there can be a part of helping me if you are a video editor. Follow Brian. We'll be following as well. And just want to say thanks again, Brian. I absolutely enjoyed your company within the past hour that you spent with us and lots of very valuable knowledge there. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, definitely. And you're welcome back to the show anytime. And we'll have to meet up sometimes since we're so close. We always talk about traveling around the world, but now there's no excuse. We're so close once the world kind of corrects itself. So thank you once again, and we'll be in touch in the future. For sure. Thanks for having me, guys. This was really, really fun. I'd love to come on again. Awesome. Talk to you soon. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.